context in Matthew 6.33, around that, Jesus was talking about uh, how people worry about what they're going to eat or drink or where they're going to sleep, where they're going to lay their heads. They're worried about their daily provision. And he says, don't worry about those things, but seek God first, seek his kingdom first, and these things will be added. In other words, you take care of him, go after God, and he'll take care of you. And that word seek first, it means seek after, seek for, aim at, strive after. 1 Corinthians 14.1, it says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And that word pursue means to pursue as in a hostile manner. To seek after eagerly, earnestly, endeavor to acquire. And that word desire means to burn with zeal. To be heated or to boil. In other words, you can see the metaphor, the metaphorical, if that's the word, if I'm using it right, language that the Bible is using that God is inviting us to passionately pursue him. And there's another verse when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And it was to love the Lord your God with every part of you. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, your being. So we are invited to go after him, to love him with everything that's in us. He's inviting us to be passionate for him. Not to be lackadaisical or passive or anything like that. But he's inviting us. And I don't know about you, but I can feel it emotionally and spiritually this morning in the worship. It was like the Holy Spirit was drawing us to come close to him. And I could feel the passion. It was like we were responding, yes, Lord. That one song, we are your burning ones. We burn. How many of you burn for him? I mean, you just consume with love for God. Thank you. You know, I started talking about this a couple of weeks ago. And as I was reading this, as the Lord was ministering to me, and I realized, as I shared before, I was talking to a sister, and I could just feel the burning zeal in her for for revival. And what I recognized, what the Holy Spirit was putting his finger on in my heart was, why aren't you hungry right now? And I recognized that I wasn't hungry like I used to be, or I normally am. I wasn't burning with zeal. In other words, talking about revival didn't bring up passion and and excitement and stir me up like it used to. And it's like, what's going on? Why am I not hungry? And the Holy Spirit said, what have you been eating? If you're not hungry... Then either you've just finished eating or you're sick. Something wrong with you. You know, we had kids that got hit with the yucks this week. The yucky yucks. I know some others got hit with it too. You know, stuff coming out of places. Yeah, I'm not being that graphic. You can use your imagination. But we had some kids that were sick, and, and I know one of them who normally eats, Lisa's like, he's not eating. I want him to eat. Eat something. He's not. I said, honey, you know that's not normal, so you know he's not feeling well. Believe me, when he's better, he's going to eat. The kid won't miss a meal. But when he was sick, he wasn't hungry. 
His hunger was shut down. For whatever reasons, your body does what it does to fight off the sickness and everything. So otherwise, normally speaking, I should be hungry. So if I'm not hungry, for example, if Lisa makes an awesome meal for me, like meatloaf, which is one of my favorites, which we did have, by the way, a couple of nights ago, so I'm a happy camper. Thank you very much. Do we have leftovers? Ah, yes. But if she told me, if, I'm, if, if I got home and she said, honey, I made meatloaf for you, I'm like, yes, when, we get, when do we get to eat? But if I stop by on the way home and I, I grab some, some candy bars and some chips and a big giant Sprite or something like that, and I consumed all that, when I get home, I'm not going to be hungry. Even though I would normally be hungry for what she's wanting to provide, I'm not going to be hungry because I fed on something else. And typically, if I knew we were having meatloaf, then there's no way I'm going to do something as stupid as eat a bunch of junk food, right? And so the question is, how hungry are you? How hungry? That's what Hungry Bear is asking you guys. How hungry are you for the things of God and his kingdom? You know, what's at stake here? Why is this so important? Our love and our passion for him. If we are passionate about and love him, then we will be passionate about and truly love people. You know, because I've said before that it's all about lost people who need hope, who need Jesus. And so if we're all messed up and we're messing around and we're not living the way God wants us to and we're not burning with passion, then what about all those people out there who need hope, who need a savior, who need a king? But besides that, that's not even the most important thing. Because see, if we are passionate for him, then guess what? We are going to be passionate for the things he's passionate about. If I'm passionate and I'm in love with him and I'm consumed with him, nobody's going to have to tell me that I need to reach out to people. Nobody's going to have to say a word. Now, they might be able to encourage me as to practically how, but I'm not going to have to be motivated because I'm going to be passionate about people because he's passionate about people. The passion of Christ is the person that you see when you look in the mirror. That is who he's passionate about. He is so passionate. God is so passionate about you that he would do something as crazy as have his son be sacrificed so that he can have you. How valuable are you? When those lies begin to speak to you and make you try to think that you're a piece of trash or you're worthless and and garbage and you're just a worm and all that kind of stuff. You want to think, how valuable are you? The answer is Jesus. Because that's what he gave so he can have you. And there's no way he's going to give Jesus for a piece of trash. He is passionate about you. And he's inviting us to be passionate about him. So what's at stake? Our love, our passion for him. You know, Satan believes that we only love God because of what we can get from him. He believes that we only love him because... He takes care of us or because of what we can get. And unfortunately for a lot of people, that's true. 
Because as soon as they quit getting what they think they ought to be getting, or as soon as things don't work out the way they think they should be working out, then they turn their back on him. And Satan proves his case. Say, well, how do I know that? Remember the book of Job? Remember Job? That used to be one of my least favorite books in the Bible. It's becoming one of my favorites. Job is becoming one of my favorites because of his passion for God. So much so, and this is pretty interesting, God was excited about this man. If you look at the first chapter, it says that the sons of God came up to heaven and Satan came up there with them. And I'm not to paraphrase because I don't remember the exact wording, but it's like God was saying, what have you guys, what you been up to? And Satan said, I've been going back and forth from the earth and going around. And then Satan didn't even mention anybody. Satan says, I've just been going around the earth. And then God says, have you considered Job? God was the one who initiated the whole conversation about Job. Job, Satan didn't come up and say, God, I have a beef with Job. Oh, since we're talking about Job, that's not how it started. God said, have you considered Job? And then the whole thing happens. You know, have you considered Job? You know, he's righteous. He's, he's a, he loves me, basically, God was saying. And Satan said, yeah, but that's because. Because you're protecting him. Because you bless him. So right there, the whole reason why people love you, God, is because of what they can get from you. They don't really love you. It's all about what you can do for them. What have you done for me lately? But see, God was excited about this man that loved him. And he said, all right, go ahead. Try him. Like, I don't know about you, but it's like, God, don't be so excited about me. (laughs) Like, woo! I don't know about that. But all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose on Job. And we know the story. Kids were wiped out. Everything was taken. Boils and all that stuff put on. All, the whole thing that happened. Even to the point, and we don't know how long, I don't know how long, long it lasts. Maybe theologians do. I don't know what they say, how long that time frame was. I know it was quite some time. But I don't know how long. But in all that time, even the man's wife said, just curse God and die. Get it over with. It was so horrible. But he didn't, did he? Even though he didn't understand, Job did not understand. He thought he was being mistreated by God. He, and he, you know, he's talking to God, you're, you're messing up here. You know, I need to talk to you to help straighten you out. I mean, Job had some, his theology wasn't all that correct, but he didn't drop God. He held on to him. Now, if Satan were to bring that accusation before God about you, that you only love him because of what you can get. Would it be true? What about money or lack of money? What about when the blessings don't, they stop flowing for whatever reasons? What about our comfort? You know, in America, we worship comfort. I like comfort. I'm not condemning comfort by any means. 
But if it gets taken away from us, what's going to happen? You know, a lot of times we make decisions based on, hmm, how comfortable am I going to be in that situation? Not too comfortable. No, thanks. I don't feel a leading in that direction. You know, when you go on a mission trip, I thought about this a lot, especially when I'm on a mission trip. You know what the, the hardest, now this is my theory that I've come up with, one of the hardest part of a mission trip, and if you can get this one thing settled, you're going to be okay. Besides the food, okay, food is a high one too. Besides food, one thing is the bathroom situation. Can I get a witness on that? Now, those of you who have been overseas know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who haven't, come with me sometime. Because in certain cultures, it's different. You know, we're used, to, we're used to having our little throne. And in some cultures, they don't have those. And it's hard because you're in a situation that's like, oh, no, what do I do? You know, they say, well, there's an outhouse about a quarter of a mile over there. And it's like, oh my goodness, what do I do? I mean, it, it's very difficult for us. Our comfort, we're used to things being a certain way. And if we're not careful, comfort can become an idol and we make decisions based on comfort. And if God's wanting us to do something contrary to that situation being comfortable, we have to be careful that we don't choose comfort over his, over obedience to him. And so comfort, what about our dreams? What about the things that we believe God told us a long time ago that he was going to do? And they don't seem to be happening. They don't seem to be coming into fruition. Am I going to say, well, God, you told me 30, 40, 50 years ago that this was going to happen. It didn't happen yet. You can come get me when when you decide to do this. But see, these kinds of things can challenge our love for him, our passion for him. Things don't go our way or the way we think they should go. And a lot of times we may turn our backs on them. Let's let that not be true for us. And I've shared before, I've had some situations where I've been challenged on some things, things not working out the way I thought. Particularly when it comes to the area of healing. I firmly believe in it. My belief has not changed. It's been hit quite a bit. It's been challenged. But I'm not going to let my belief in theology of healing override my love and passion for him. I'm not going to let the experiences that I've experienced, I'm not going to let the lack of results cause me to quit passionately pursuing him. And I've had to make a conscious choice time and time and time and time again. And I know I'm not the only one. He is worth pursuing passionately. But what causes? If we're not hungry, if we're not as hungry as we should be, if we're not as hungry as we want to be, when I realized that, when I was talking to my sister and I realized that, man, I'm not where I want to be, Then I began to ask the Holy Spirit, so what's causing my lack of hunger? And then he began to talk to me about what I've been eating. Because the only reason why you're not going to be hungry, two reasons, either you're sick or you've already been eaten. Eating. 
Remember the video that I showed? Remember that video I showed a couple of weeks ago? You know, all the bacon and the filet mignon and the chicken. And... Anybody getting hungry yet? You remember that video? Anybody remember that? Well, if you see that video and you're hungry, then it's going to stir up more hunger. You know, your, your uh, taste buds and everything just start lighting up and everything. But if you had a big breakfast and you're full, that video didn't move you at all. And so why am I not moved? Why am I not as hungry as I should be? You want to turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Do we have that one in the NLT version? Is that an NLT? New Living Translation. Those of you who have electronic, I'm going to be reading out of the New, Li- New Living Translation. Verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the whole army of evil desires at war within you? You want... You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous for what others have, and you can't possess it, so you fight and quarrel to take it away from them. And yet the reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your whole motive is wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Verse 4, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, that if your aim is to enjoy this world, you cannot be a friend of God. Friendship with this world. He uses the analogy, he uses terminology like adultery, adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Being friends with the world makes us hostile towards God. It makes us unfaithful to him. That's the... The imagery that they're using. You know, I man, I want to ask you something. Those of you who are married, if you are looking at pornography, or if you are lusting at other ladies, how is that going to affect your relationship with your wife? And we know the obvious answer. But let's say something that's even more dangerous. What if I told you, you know I'm married, but there's a lady that I was spending time with, and this lady hated my wife. Absolutely hated her. And this lady did everything she could to try to break us up. And this lady actually had and expressed time and time again her feelings towards me. Basically, her wanting to replace herself with Lisa. And you knew that about this lady. But yet you saw me spending time with this lady. At night, in the day, taking her out for dinner. And said, hey, 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 it's, it's okay. It's not what you think. We're just friends.
And Lisa's like, why are you doing this? Why are you going out with her? It's okay, honey. It's not what you think. Not that big a deal. Quit getting all crazy and stuff. But yet I kept hanging out with this lady. Now, would you come and lovingly confront me? Or would you sit back and talk about me? So what would you think? Would that be a good thing? I know some of my brothers would begin to minister to me. You know, when they talk about laying on of hands. I'm sure I'd become acquainted with that ministry because I know some brothers who would say, uh, CJ, we're going to talk after we finish. So the pornography, the lusting after other women, hanging out with a woman that I know hates my wife and wants to replace my wife. There's no difference between that and us being friends with the world when it comes to our relationship with God. Same thing. His word says, you adulterers, do you not realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? If I'm hanging out with some woman that hates my wife, then how can I say I love my wife? I'm making myself an enemy of her because that situation will destroy that relationship. There's no way our relationship will last if I continue my relationship with that lady. And it's the same thing with us in Jesus. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. Mark 4, 18 and 19, it says, Now these are the ones... Sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, capital S, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally or fleshly minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal or fleshly mind is enmity, enmity at war against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do not love the world or the things of the world because you can't have that and the love of the Father in you simultaneously. The world system is anti-Christ. Anti, against. Jesus told his disciples, says, the world hates you. Or it hated me, excuse me. It hated me and it's going to hate you too. 
The world system, everything in this world as far as the system is against God. And so if we get in bed with this world, then guess what? We are going to be aligning ourselves against him. And so if we're doing that, if we're aligning ourselves with the world, but yet we expect to be passionate for him, we can see how that's not working. We can see how that's not going to work. Hungry Bear wants to know what number you would give your spiritual hunger on a scale of 1 to 10. One being barely alive and 10 being red hot, starving passion for Jesus. You know, in your mind, what would you give? How would you number yourself? What kind of hunger does your lifestyle display and represent? You know, it's one thing. I appreciate worship on Sunday morning. The corporate worship, worship is one of my favorite things. I appreciate it. I enjoy it. And I'm not talking about how loud can you get, how high can you raise your hands, and how low can you get on the floor during worship, that being the measure of your spiritual hunger. Now, that should be an outflow of it. That should be, I mean, that should happen. But I'm talking about our lifestyle. Aside from Sunday morning church. You know, when I'm out there living my life with my family, or out there at Walmart or wherever I am, what kind of hunger does my life or my lifestyle represent? When you make important decisions, do you seek his kingdom or do you seek him first? Or do you just make a decision based on what you want and expect him to bless you? I'd be willing to say that a lot of us Americans do the latter. Because, unfortunately, a lot of our lives revolve around me. And I believe God wants me to be happy. And so, therefore, he would want me to be happy. So whatever I choose to make me happy, he ought to bless Do you make decisions based on him? Do you seek him? God, what do you want? What is going to honor and glorify you? What is your will for my life? Or is it what I want? What kind of example are you modeling for your children? You know, there's a statistic. I don't know if it's higher now than it was when I was a youth pastor. But it was like 80-something percent. I think it was 86, between 80 and 86 percent of Kids, when they left home, Christian kids who lived in Christian environments, when they left home, they turned away from the Lord. Pretty high. Eight out of ten, something like that. I used to think, why is that? Their parents go to church. Their parents are active in the church. Their parents are good. Their parents are nice. Blah, blah, you know, all that stuff. And we use that as our indicator of a godly home. And so it's like our kids grew up in that. So when they go out there and face the hard hateful, anti-Christ world, we wonder why they turn away from him. And I begin to think, because the Lord obviously challenges me, 
But what kind of example am I leaving or am I setting for my kids? For example, here's one that, that I thought of for a long time when I was a youth pastor, especially because I hear about this a lot. It seems like in our society, and I'm talking about us parents, particularly in Stillwater because it's a very educationally oriented community, but it seems like our default is when my kid graduates from high school, they're going to college. Or they're supposed to go to college. Default. In other words, that's what's supposed to happen. You're going to college. And my only problem with that is I don't have anything against college. I graduated from that university. My challenge with that is, as a parent, am I asking God, what is your will for my child? Is it college? Or is it tech school? Or is it mission field? Or is it going into the workforce? Lord, what are you challenging my son's daughters to do? So my question is, do you have the conversation with your child or your children? Son, what do you believe God is putting in your heart to do? What is he putting in your heart to do? Well, I feel like I want to teach. I want to teach on a, on, a, on a college level. I believe that God's just putting that in my heart. Okay, so what do we need to do to help you get there? In other words, what they believe God is calling them to do, that's what we should be, I believe, pushing them towards. I hope you're hearing me. I'm not speaking against education. I hope you're hearing that. But what happens is, when I tell my kids, you're going to school, you're going to school, you're going, I don't care. Because now my motivation is I want my children to have good jobs, good lives, to be taken care of. I want my children to be comfortable. And so we've been trained by society that the way for that to happen is to get a good paying job with benefits. So they can take care of their families. They have plenty of food and everything so they can be comfortable. And we don't realize it, but that's what our idol has become. And we're pushing that on our kids. Instead of encouraging them, son, daughter, his kingdom is everything. I want you to go after him with everything. Whatever he wants you to do. Oh, military? You believe he wants, he's calling you the military? Let's go for it. What do we need to do to help you get ready for the military? Whatever it is. If that's not how we're encouraging and raising up our kids, then what we're doing is we're placing that idol before them and saying, this is more important than him. We're not going to say that, but we're modeling that. We're saying this and this world system is more important. I remember one of my sons telling me, my oldest son, he said, Dad, if I wanted to go to India after I graduated from college, would you be okay with that? I said, yeah, if that's what you believe God's wanting you to do. He says, I, I, I feel that. This was a year and a half ago. I, Man, I just have this passion to go to India. I said, okay, yeah. Whatever we can do to help you. Yeah, let's do it. And then he told me, because he had some friends who were stirred up. They got stirred up for the mission field. And their parents said, there is no way you're going to India. You're going to finish your education. Or you're going to do this. In other words, they, they pushed them towards this. Now, obviously, I'm hearing one part of the story. I'm not here. I wasn't there with the parents hearing the whole thing. So I'm not able to represent that situation accurately. But it reminded me of what I see quite often. 
And according to him, these parents were adamant that you're not wasting. My child is not going over there. My child is going to get a good education. And then what happens? So we're raising our children in an environment of nice status quo Christianity. And we say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus on Sunday mornings, but our lifestyles live me, 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 comfort, comfort, comfort. And so our kids are raised up in that. And so unintentionally we're pushing them towards that which we value. So then they leave our homes and then they go into, especially if they go to a university or the military or any action, just out in the world. And they go into the system that is antichrist and it's full of pleasure and sensuality and it's all about me. And they get, they get introduced to that world. I'm like, whoa, this feels good. Whoa, my parents warned me about you. No, 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 I'm going to stay away from you. What time do you start? Then after a while, our kids get enveloped right into that. Why? I'm speaking, generally speaking, because our lukewarm, our status quo, our nice Christianity cannot compete with the world. It cannot compete with the world. You know, in the past when Hungry Bear has asked people what they would give their, how they would number themselves. And typically people would number themselves when asked between a four to six range. Four to six range. Some of you might have placed yourself in that four to six range. In other words, in the middle. Revelations 3, 14 through 19 says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things that says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent, says the Lord. Being in the middle, there's nobody any good. And many of us in our culture, that's pretty much where we live our lives, right there in the middle. Why is that so dangerous? Why is that so deadly? Why is that so bad? See, he says, I would rather you be hot or cold. One or the other, because then I, I can deal with you. Obviously, he wants us to be passionately hot, obviously. But cold, where it's like, if I'm really cold and you see me, you see I'm not representing the Lord in any way, shape, or form. I may consider myself a Christian, but you don't see me as representing him. 
And so therefore, you don't see me as a hypocrite because I'm not pretending. But if I'm in the middle, then you see me as saying that I'm representing him. I go to church. I do nice things. I homeschool my kids. I do all the Christian godly looking things. But then you also look at me and you say, there's no difference in your life than in my life. There's no difference in your marriage than in my marriage. You're bound by the same pornography and the junk that I'm bound by. And yet you're trying to get me to go to church. Yeah, you're trying to tell me that I need Jesus because he's going to do what? What has he done for you? That's what lukewarm does. It shows the world that he is weak. Because he's made no difference in my life. And unfortunately, when a person who doesn't claim to be a Christian, but they're in bondage, severe bondage of whatever kind, it makes it worse when they look at my life and they know it's pretty messed up. And then they think there's no hope. Because they do all the good things and go to church and they're just as messed up as I am. What hope am I going to have? Lukewarm is not a place where he wants us to be. Now, I understand when he says, I will vomit you, that's not a pretty picture, whatever that means. I've seen a graphic display of that stuff this week. It's not pretty. Doesn't smell good either. It doesn't smell good. I'm serious. Are you content where are you content with where you are? Do you hunger for him? You know, there are no perfect parents. Actually there was one. His name was God. And his kids even rebelled against him. Remember the Garden of Eden? Perfect scenario, perfect everything. And they still rebelled. So it doesn't mean that if we do everything right, that our kids are going to turn out on fire for God. But we do want to leave them with the right representation. We want to leave them with the right example. So here's what it looks like to go after him. Here's what it looks like to put him first. You know, when you're all messed up and angry, someone has wounded you, hurt you, and you're bitter and you're frustrated, what motivates you to release and repent from that bitterness and to get that relationship right? What motivates you? Maybe the relationship with that person being restored. But what if you don't care? What if you don't care if you get your relationship restored with that person? What should motivate you is your love for him. Because he says to get it right, to get it restored, or at least to forgive. And so it's like everything we do, the motivation behind it should be, how can I please him? 
And that's what happens when I'm angry and I'm stuck. I'm just full of anger. And I could care less if I get right things right with the person. It always falls back to Jesus. Like, oh man, did you have to show up? And it's like, okay, Lord, help me deal with my heart. Do whatever you need to do. Fix this stuff inside so that I honor you. And then when it's right with me and him, then guess what? I'm going to move towards that person because it honors him. All of my decisions should be based on my passion, my love for him. I ask you to close your eyes for a second. You know, when we talk about friendship with the world, you know, all kinds of images could come up. It's like, oh, does that mean I need to turn off the TV? Does that mean I need to turn off Facebook? Does that mean I need to turn off football? Does that mean I need to turn off? Does that mean I need to? Maybe. But I'm not going to name, and I've been intentional in not naming those things, because as soon as I name some, I'm not going to name yours, and then you're going to think you got off scot-free. But it's not about trying to see what we can get by with. But it's about inviting the Holy Spirit and saying, Lord, what is in my life that is causing my passion for you to cool off? What is causing me not to burn with passion for you? What is throwing cold water on that flame? As the Holy Spirit begins to put his finger on that thing or those things, and you respond to him, he will provide the grace for you to turn away and repent from those things. And even give you wisdom, practical things as to what to do. And we're going to talk about some practical things, what we can do to fuel that flame. Because it's not about what we don't do, but it's about what we do. And so I just want to invite you to ask Holy Spirit. And actually, I believe he's already been putting his fingers on those things. And you've been wrestling with it. It's like, oh, yeah, I know, I know. But remember this. It's not about that thing. It's about giving your heart fully to the one who is most passionate about you. It's the one who has your best interest in mind. It's the one who can truly set you free to live life the way he's intended for you to live. Fully content. The Holy Spirit, we invite you not only to put your finger on that thing or those things that's throwing cold water in our relationship. Those things that are trying to turn my heart away from you. We invite you to reveal those things. And we ask for your grace. And we thank you for your gift of repentance. Because, Lord, you tell, us, you tell us to be zealous and repent. And, Lord, we know that you're bringing these things to our attention because you love us. And you want the very best for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit.
I would encourage whoever this is for, that whatever decisions you feel the Holy Spirit is leading you to make, that you get accountability, whether it's your spouse or a close, trusted brother or friend, that'll help you be accountable. You say, I feel like the Lord is challenging me and saying, I need to put this away. I need to stop this or whatever it is. And you share and confess that with somebody and ask them to pray for you. Receive that grace that enables you, gives you strength to follow through. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Stand up. I want to end with this, that a few weeks ago I received an email, and it was about um, when ISIS was really in the news and all the horrible things they were doing. And one thing they were doing when they were going into these towns is instead of, you know, they were getting Christians and making them deny Jesus, embrace Islam, or they'd kill them. What they started doing, and what they were doing in this particular place, according to the missionary, what they were doing is they were going house to house, and they were getting the children, not the parents. They were telling the kids to to deny Jesus or they're going to kill them. Not one of those kids denied Jesus. They were all killed. And that broke me. They were so in love with Jesus that when given the opportunity to keep their lives or end their lives because of him, they chose him. That's what I want. Thing that you've heard me share time and time again, the missionary or the man who had his whole family, all his children, his wife, they were trying to get them to deny Jesus, trying to get the man to quit preaching the gospel and deny Jesus. He said no. So he started with the baby, killed the baby, all the way up through all his family, and killed his wife, left him standing there with his family murdered, and they left him. That man continued not only to preach the gospel, but with such power as to even raise the dead. You think a man with bitterness in his heart is going to be like that? I don't think so. He was so in love with Jesus that nothing cared. My heart is, God, bring it on. I want that kind of unashamed and in love. Amen? God bless you. Have an incredible Thanksgiving. Don't forget to bring your boxes, those of you who forgot. 
and I'll see you guys next week.